Hello, all. Last time uh, we left off talking about the significance and meaning of the great fish of Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Now, I won't recap what I said in that podcast, but it's enough to know that to the Hebrew mind, the great fish was more than a great fish. So whereas we tend to get caught up in questions about what kind of creature it was and how it was physically possible for the animal to swallow Jonah, let alone that Jonah lived through it all, the original audience wanted to know what the event meant. So why a sea creature, or as the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, more than hence in their translation, why a sea monster? As we saw last time, this event occurs within a matrix of meaning within Scripture that sees Jonah not only taken in by spiritual evil, the creature, like many places in Scripture, like Genesis 3, uh, points beyond its physical reality to a spiritual reality. But it also anticipates what will actually happen with the northern kingdom of Israel by way of the Assyrian Empire. That real-life events often carry symbolic, if not prophetic meaning, that goes well beyond the moments themselves is a regular occurrence in the Bible. It actually happens quite a bit. Now, to see a very spelled out version of this, consider Ezekiel 4, where Ezekiel, living in Babylon, who was part of one of the first waves of exiles from Jerusalem, is commanded by God to create a model of Jerusalem, complete with an attacking army surrounding it, and in turn, he was to lie on his left side for 390 straight days, representing the punishment of the northern kingdom of Israel, and then after that, to do the same thing on his right side for 40 days, representing the punishment of the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, as he does this day after day in public view, as in other Jewish exiles who knew Ezekiel as a prophet would watch him do this, the meals that he makes were to be meager, like small meals cooked over dung, and he was to drink small measured amounts of water, signifying again to the people how bad it would be for God's people hold up in Jerusalem as the Babylonians sieged the city. So he does all of this publicly in front of them. So in other words, the prophet was to act out. He was really dramatizing the coming judgment of God against Jerusalem. Now, sometimes the meaning of a prophet's life, they're not so spelled out as that, complete with you know play models and whatnot, but they become clearer after the fact. Now, consider what is perhaps a more familiar story with Joseph in the book of Genesis. If you consider the broad strokes of his story, here's what you're going to find. Joseph was set apart by his father from his brothers. He was Jacob's beloved son in many ways, so to speak, hinting at Jesus down the road. And as the story goes, he, he's set apart to be a light to the nations, that's Egypt, and to go and prepare a place for Israel. And at this point, Israel would have been the patriarch Jacob, renamed Israel by God, and his sons and their families. And he's to go to prepare pair a place for Israel in the heart of Gentile power. Now, this is a pattern repeated with the Exodus, where in Exodus 23, 20, God promises to send the angel of the Lord before Israel to conquer the land. 
Jesus says something similar in John 14, verses 2 and 3, where he tells his disciples before his crucifixion that he goes before them to prepare a place for them in his Father's house. As an aside, for Israel to be in Egypt at the end of the book of Genesis is to be away from the promised land where God had promised to make Abraham into a mighty nation. So in other words, Israel was in exile from the land. Now, Joseph, after receiving dreams, telling him or indicating that he would rule over his parents and brothers, he was betrayed by his brothers and then was first thrown into a pit, then later into prison, and was resurrected to life up to the right hand of Pharaoh, becoming the one through whom Pharaoh ruled over all of Egypt and effectively over the whole world. Through Joseph, the world, including Israel, found life. This, by the way, anticipates Daniel's role in Babylon. But as you can hopefully hear, Joseph's life really anticipates Jesus' life too. But it also anticipates prophets like Jonah as well. So Jonah was set apart from his brothers as a prophet. That's what it is to be a prophet, to speak the word of the Lord. And it is apparent that on some things, Israel did listen to him, in particular about the expansion of Israel's borders. But on most things, they rejected God's word through Jonah. In turn, God set Jonah apart to be a light to the nations, which would have been Assyria. And his preaching to Nineveh was not only a judgment on Israel, it was intended to go and prepare a place for Israel in the heart of Gentile power. So Jonah, like Joseph though clearly Joseph was faithful in a way that Jonah was not, Jonah was swallowed by Gentile, Gentile power, that's the fish, and was in the depths of the pit, so to speak, but was resurrected to preach to Nineveh, just as Joseph preached to Pharaoh. It is clear that both Pharaoh in Genesis and the king of Assyria in Jonah repented and were converted, along with significant portions of Egypt and Nineveh, which included both the nobility and cultural elites. You know, after all, Joseph married a woman whose father was part of the Egyptian priesthood. Joseph, as a good and faithful Jew, would never have married a pagan, so I think it's indicative, like in Nineveh, that large groups in Egypt were actually converted, including some of the pagan priesthood, if not all of them. In Genesis, through Joseph, a place was made for Israel in Egypt. In Jonah, Nineveh becomes a plant that provides shade for Israel, even in her punishment of exile. So if you compare 2 Kings 17 and Assyria's treatment of Israel, it's clear that life in Assyria was far from pleasant. I mean, in fact, it was very hard. But still, God did not give up his covenant with Israel and promised life to her all the same. My point is that if not for Jonah's preaching it would have been much worse for Israel and Assyria. So God sent Jonah to prepare a place for Israel, even in her, in, in her judgment. Now, with Joseph's story, by the time we get to Exodus 1, Egypt commits apostasy. And under a new pharaoh that does not know Joseph, things are very different. And it's not as though he had never heard of Jonah Joseph, excuse me, I'm sure he had. It was rather that Pharaoh rejected Joseph's God. It's clear that Israel had done this too. And we get a similar picture in Jonah 3 and 4 that 
Though the king of Nineveh and much of his kingdom repented and worshipped the true God, at some point in the future, Nineveh would also commit apostasy and return to its violence. So the plant that gave shade to Israel would soon wither and not be able to withstand God's judgment and would cease to give Israel shade. This, of course, actually happens through the Babylonians. Now, if you read the prophets that came after Jonah, prophets like Nahum and Habakkuk, they both speak words concerning Assyria's downfall because of her violence and wickedness. Now, my point is that the events of the book of Jonah, far from being random or merely being a morality tale about how we should love our enemies, actually fits with established patterns as far back as Joseph and really with Abraham and Jacob too. And these same patterns are repeated with Daniel, who comes 300 or so years later after Jonah. And all of these patterns, all of these types, of course, find their fulfillment in Christ himself. That's why when you listen to the the Joseph story, your mind should immediately go to Jesus himself. And the point is not that Hebrew authors couldn't come up with original stories. Uh, Often liberal and unbelieving scholars make that very argument. It's rather that God as the author of history, has been weaving one story with many variations on a theme that repeats or inverts or weaves in and out, all of which find their meaning and conclusion in Jesus. At least that's what Jesus himself teaches in Luke 24 with the events on the road to Emmaus with his disciples. Well, that takes us to chapter 2 of the book of Jonah. Now, last week we briefly looked at how Jonah's prayer lines up with Jeremiah's prayer in Jeremiah 51, where Jeremiah compares Nebuchadnezzar conquering Jerusalem to a dragon who has eaten Jeremiah and vomited him him out, but also the description of God's coming judgment in Amos 9, where if God's people try to flee from him, even to the very bottom of the sea, he will command the serpent, that is the dragon, to bite them. As we mentioned, both of these prophets came after Jonah and surely would have been familiar with his, his work and his prophecy, and I'm sure built their imagery off of his own life. Now, while I'm not going to take the time to go verse by verse through Jonah's prayer, I think it's appropriate to see Jonah's repentance within the prayer as anticipating Israel's repentance, at least a remnant of Israel's repentance in exile. Jonah says in 2.4, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple, even as in 1.3 it says Jonah fled from God's presence. So in other words, like we see in other places of Scripture, God gave Jonah over to his sinful desire. So if Jonah wanted to flee from God, like northern Israel had been doing for generations, then God would give him, and in turn Israel, who he represented, what he wanted and would drive him away. So it's not unlike the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, in which the younger brother, effectively longing for his father's death and in turn wanting his inheritance money, is given what he wants by his father. His father sells part of his property and gives it to his son, who leaves his father's house in order to live like hell. And it is a perfect picture of Israel's life since Jeroboam I. Like Jonah, who sees his folly in the belly of the sea creature, 
The younger brother of the parable, living amongst the unclean pigs in a foreign country, no less, sees the folly that led him to his self-induced exile and wonders if he can come home, at the very least, be a servant to his father. Well, Jonah here in chapter 2 knows that God is full of steadfast loving kindness and faithfulness and that chasing after vain idols, just as his own people had done and just like the younger brother of the parable had done, well, those people forsake all hope of embracing that loving kindness. By the end of his prayer, Jonah does not long to be apart from his God, so he repents. No, he knows that in God's faithfulness he will see God in his holy temple, which is another way of saying he will be with him forever. And so God spoke to the fish and it vomited, vomited him upon the dry land. This provides an interesting example of how God is both Lord over all of creation, including the sea monsters and spiritual evil, and how he sometimes chooses to work. If you follow the language of the story, God appoints various things. He appoints a storm, a great fish, a plant, a worm, and a scorching east wind to do his will. I think the sea creature, which is a real sea creature, and again, I have no idea what it was, represents both spiritual evil, and as we saw last time, it fits within that matrix of meaning with, with the snake of Genesis 3 or the dragon or the Leviathan as you find him across Scripture, even as it looks forward to Assyria. And it's telling that all of creation answers to God's voice. Storms, sea creatures, the demonic, and great cities of rebellious and wicked Gentiles set against God like Nineveh. It's why, like we saw this past Sunday with Luke 8 and Jesus' interaction with the man possessed by a legion of demons, the demons are not equal to God. They were made by him. They fear him. And when confronted by him, they obey his word without question. As we will see this fall in our series on Daniel, God appointed a man like Nebuchadnezzar to administer his judgment on Jerusalem, even as Nebuchadnezzar created an idol in his own image and attempted to burn to death faithful Jews who refused to worship him. That's pretty snake-like. The same Nebuchadnezzar would come to faith through Daniel's ministry and would be appointed by God to be a tree giving shade to the world. But in his arrogance and rejection of God, God, like what he does with the plant in Jonah, would cut him down to size. God doesn't merely use his own people or the righteous to accomplish his goals. Sometimes he uses the very wicked and even evil spiritual beings to accomplish his goal. As Joseph commented at the end of the book of Genesis, what men intend for evil, God intends for good. And as so often happens, it may be within the very same event. So God can use sea monsters and the wicked, even violent empires, to accomplish his goals. And along the way, he may turn men like Nebuchadnezzar into his own people. Well, next week we'll move on to chapters 3 and 4 and go even more deeply with the book of Jonah.